0: Since yesterday, I have been waiting for you in the mountains where no cypresses grow. Let your wife stand beside you to greet me. I offer my greeting and leave you to decide my destiny. We're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest, Kelton. And we are still listening to Lugulbanda and the Anzu Bird, another of the Sumerian epic texts written in the 21st century BCE. And again, we're continuing this story from last episode.
1: Last time on Epic Texts.
0: Lugalbanda was on a military campaign to invade the eastern mountain kingdom of Arata when he fell sick. And
1: his bros had to leave him up in a cave.
0: And then he prayed a lot and got better. So he set out to find the Anzu Bird, the legendary bird that guards the boundaries of the known world. But the Anzu bird was not home; he was out hunting for his chick,
1: guarding the boundaries of the known world. huh? Yeah.
0: So Lugalbanda found the Anzu chick in its nest and prepared a sumptuous feast for him, and painted his face with coal like makeup, treated him like a prince, I guess. <laughs> Gave this baby a makeover. I mean, it's it's weird, but you know, it <laughs> showed I hospitality, I, I guess. I said, yeah. <laughs> guest guest <laughs> friendship.
1: Baby chick makeover. All right. Not exactly.
0: Baby chick is like, you know, weavy hair and glasses. It's like, yeah. oh, that the take off the glasses. It's like, wow, you're hot. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like an 80s makeover. Yeah, exactly. Like, it just, like, takes the hair out of a bun. Yeah. You know, like, all the feathers flop down flop perfectly.
0: <laughs> Anzu comes back from one to like, this has some troubling implications. <laughs> <laughs> so, essentially, the Anzu comes back and sees that Lugubanda has been generous to his son. So, Lugubanda asks to be adopted by the Anzu. Very fun. Yes.
1: To be, you're asking to be adopted by the guardian of the edge of the known world.
0: Well, that's worth asking. Worst can say is, well, there's probably a lot of stuff you could do, but he could say no. So Lugubanda asks to be assigned a fate, which will be up to Anzu, but every blessing that Anzu gives him, Lugubanda refuses to accept it.
1: Uh, It's like when I ask you like, hey man, where do you want to go for dinner? And you're like, pizza. And I'm like, no. And then you're like, (laughs) all right, how about we get burritos? I'm like, no. He's fishing for something in particular. Right. The bird presents himself before him, rejoices over him. Anzu presents himself before him, rejoices over him. Anzu says to holy Lugulbanda, Come now, my Lugulbanda, go like a boat full of precious metals, like a grain bar, like a boat going to deliver apples, like a boat piled high with a cargo of cucumbers casting a shade like a boat loaded lavishly at the place of harvest. Go back to brick-built kulaba with head held high. Lugubanda, who loves the seed, will not accept this. Like Shara, Inanna's beloved son, shoot forth with your barbed arrows like a sunbeam. Shoot forth with reed arrows like moonlight. May the barbed arrows be a horned viper to those they hit. Like the fish killed with the cleaver, may they be magic cut. May you bundle them up like logs hewn with the axe. Lugubanda, who loves the seed, will not accept this. May Ninurta, Enlil's son, set the helmet lion of battle on your head. May the breastplate that in the great mountains does not Permit retreat, be laid upon your breasts. lugubanda who loves the seed, will not accept this. The plenty of Dumuzi's holy butter churn. That's my new favorite, holy butter churn. Yes, yes, yes. It's fun to see what was important in the past. <laughs> Whose butter is the butter of all the world, shall be granted to you. Its milk is the milk of all the world. It shall be granted to you. Lugubanda, who loves the seed, will not accept this as a kib bird, a freshwater kib, as it flies along a lagoon. He answered Anzu in words.
0: And the text says he talks here, but it doesn't actually say what he says. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So presumably, Lugubanda says something. Uh uh-uh. uh.
1: The bird listened to him. Anzu said to holy Lugubanda, "Now look, my Lugubanda." Just think again. It's like this. A willful plow walk should be put back in the track. A balking ash should be made to take the straight path. Still, I shall grant you what you put to me. I shall assign you an allotted destiny according to your wishes. Holy
0: Lugubanda answers him. Let the power of running be in my thighs. Let me never grow tired. Let there be strength in my arms. Let me stretch my arms wide. Let my arms never become weak. Moving like the sunlight, like Inanna, like the seven storms, those of Ishkur, let me leap at a flame, blaze like lightning. Let me go wherever I look to, set foot wherever I cast my glance, reach wherever my heart desires, and let me loosen my shoes in whatever place my heart has named to me. When Utu lets me reach Kulaba, my city, let him who curses me have no joy thereof. Let him who wishes to strive with me never say, just let him come. I shall have the wood carvers fashion statues of you, and you will be breathtaking to look upon. Your name will be famous thereby in Sumer, and will redound to the credit of the temples of the great gods.
1: I feel like there's some monkey paws potential here. Yes. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> I, I would love to take the let me let me let me stand wherever I glance, very literally. So right, like right. everywhere you look you get teleported. Yeah. That would be an awful yeah. curse. If you
0: keep yeah, if you face forward and keep your eyes open, you just constantly like <laughs> across yeah, the yeah
1: yeah. You open the fridge, you like look at the pickle jar, BOOM! You're the pickle jar! Uh, also, I would like to point out what a jerk Lugubanda is. Like, no, 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 it's your choice, Anzu. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, the stop, god yep, here. Yep, yep. No, that's a bad idea. No, that's a terrible idea. No, that's a terrible No, you're very bad. I'm gaslighting a god. Yeah. You're very bad at that. You're dumb and stupid. I tell you what, just, 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 just let me tell you what you should have said when I gave you the choice. Let me let you
0: know. Let me come to your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Play dress-up
1: doll with your child. (laughs) And then tell you what to give me.
0: So Anzu grants his wish. So they both appear to be satisfied.
1: Lugubanda took in his hand such of his provisions as he had not eaten, and his weapons one by one. Anzu flew on high. Lugubanda walked on the ground. The bird, looking from above, spies the troops. Lugubanda. Looking from below, spies the dust that the troops have stirred up. The bird says to Lugubanda, Come now, my Lugubanda. I shall give you some advice. May my advice be heeded. I shall say words to you, bear them in mind. What I have told you, the fate I have fixed for you, do not tell it to your comrades. Do not explain it to your brothers. Fair fortune may conceal foul.
0: Yeah! Oh! Bird joke!
1: <laughs> fair fortune may conceal foul. It is indeed so. Leave me to my nest. You keep to your troops. The bird hurried to his nest. Lugobanda set out for the place where his
0: brothers were. So Anzu helped Lugobanda find the soldiers that had previously abandoned him, and they are presumably about to fight Areta.
1: And just, yeah, 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 definitely the God just gave a moral advice to not tell a secret mm-hmm. to a bunch of more. I'm sure, mm-hmm. based off my knowledge of stories, mm-hmm. that Lugul Banda will not <laughs> cross that line. <laughs> yeah. I'm 100% sure that Lugul Banda will follow that and the story will go with no complications. <laughs> we will see. If he doesn't, I'm going to be so bad. If, if, <laughs> if he actually stays in the confines, I'd be so bummed.
0: <laughs> So we'll see how this works out. But first, so this will be episode two of two on the Jemdat Nasser period. We're covering the period between about 3100 and 2900 BC. So we're after the end of the Uruk period and before the early dynastic period, which is when we'll have the first written history as such. Today, we're going to look at institutions, in other words, temples and or palaces. These are both outgrowths of calcolithic households in different ways, and they will soon be the two major poles of urban society. Then we'll talk about the Sumerian question, in other words whether or not these people were speaking Sumerian, we're running out of time to ask it because we'll get written Sumerian soon, but the short answer is that it's still unclear whether or not they're speaking Sumerian, but they probably are. And then we'll finish up with the end of the Lugalbanda saga. So, just a quick review, during the late Neolithic, more people were incorporated into larger households. Separate lineages subconsciously combined themselves into single social units to interact with the rest of society as a unified whole. Over time, more long-distance exchange was centered on these households. So, individual households Over time, accumulated social capital via marriage alliances, traditions of mutual gift-giving, but throwing people feasts so that they would owe you something. over time, the entire community would be obligated to members of that family for one reason or another. And these obligations would gradually get more formal. So personal obligations to a specific person only last as long as that person lives. If you have an obligation to that family, that can outlive that person's death. But if you have a permanent obligation to the institution, ideally grounded in some kind of supernatural or religious explanation... That would be a more permanent obligation and a harder one to break. Over time, these households got bigger and began to host more social functions, which created the need for more elaborate systems of record-keeping, and increasingly, the productive labor for the benefit of the household, for example, farming, herding, weaving, processing dairy products, and so on, would be done by people outside the family represented by the household. So whereas in earlier periods, you could hold a work feast where your social equals would come and share food and then do work for you, and you might do work for them next week, over time, you are hosting increasingly elaborate feasts and demanding larger and larger work products that you could never repay to other people the same way that they're paying to you. By the late Uruk period, these extended households are the de facto centers of government for city-states in the alluvium, probably at this point conceived of as the household of a god rather than the household of a particular family, although we can't be sure. They're collecting tribute from cities of thousands to tens of thousands. They're paying rations to hundreds of manual laborers and better salaries to more specialized artisans, and they're also overseeing transfers of huge amounts of resources to certain elite officials. So I've been using the words institution and temple interchangeably. To be fair, we have no real proof that these institutions were primarily centered around religious worship. We do have a lot of extremely suggestive proof, but it's most common to call them temples, so I will too. Temples and palaces are organized on similar principles, the temple being a household of a god and the palace being the household of a particular royal family of alive people. In both cases, these are an extended household with a bureaucratic staff and political power, and I'll be calling them temples. So during the Jemdet Nasser period, the name of this institution is written with the sign Ab. In later periods, the sign is used to write the Sumerian word Esh, which is one word for household, specifically the temple household. In other words, the entire institution, not just the building. During the Uruk period, the sign Ab may have referred to the Persian Gulf or an alluvial marsh. This is Robert England's guess, partially based on the fact that it looks like a river delta pictorially. But during the Jemdat nasser period, it apparently refers to the temple household, which, as I said, is Esh in later Sumerian. We'll talk more about this in a bit. So we don't have these temples' org charts. In other words, we don't have an explanation of who reports to whom, as explained to an outsider who doesn't know anything about the temple, as we generally don't. What we do have is a bunch of administrative records recording movement of grain and animal products in and out of the temple, as well as more information from later periods, which may or may not apply to the Jemdat nasser So starting at the top of this hierarchy, the sign combination Namesh-Da, Appears at the beginning of the Lutu A list, which, as we've been talking about, is probably a list of official titles. These signs in Sumerian may be pronounced Nam Gish Shita, or Lord of the Mace. Maces, as a symbol of political power, do proliferate during the late Uruk period. In a much later text, Nameshda is translated into Akkadian as Shah which is their word for king, and appears in the name of Sargon or Sharum Ken. So it's possible that the Nameshda was at the top of the Uruk or Jemdat Nasser period temple hierarchy. In later periods, we'll see indications that the Namesh Da might have a role within the city league. So the sign N during the 2000s represents the Sumerian word N, or Lord. On the Warka vase, which we talked about last episode, the sign appears above the quote-unquote priest king. So it's a common claim that these temples are run by a leader called N, or Lord. The same sign also appears in other Uruk and Jimnet Nasser contexts. For example, the N of the textile workshop that we talked about in the textile episode. In the administrative records, the leader appears to have the title N, not Namashda. So in other words, the leader of the Esh may have been titled N or Lord. This may be a synonym for Namashda. They may be different titles for the same person, or they may be different people entirely. Namashta might already be obsolete. It definitely will be by the 2500s. So in other words, as we see later in the 2500s, in the Jem'at Nasser, they may already be copying obsolete lexical lists with political offices that no longer exist in the real world, but do exist in the scholarly canon that they have to learn to become a scribe. At Jemdet Nasser, the local temple appears to be led by someone titled Sangha. In later periods, Sangha refers to a scribe and or a temple official. In early periods, the word Dubsar for scribe does not appear. This may be because they didn't conceive of a scribe as a separate job from a bureaucrat who has to be able to read and write as a function of their office. These records indicate that there may have been different legal categories of land. For example, Gan En or Lord's Field might be land allocated to the En by the temple. We see evidence of subsistence fields, a precursor of the later Sumerian shuku fields. In other words, these would be given to lower-level artisans and professionals to be able to support themselves without needing regular rations from the temple. We also see fields connected to the sign Mosh. This sign represents a male kid, you know, a goat. These texts might record the payment of a certain type of rent, but unfortunately most of these documents were looted, so we can't know exactly what context they were used in. So moving to slavery, during the jem Nasser, we see lots of new terminology for people. They're still using the same categories for slaves and livestock, but as we'll see, they're using new words for children. In one text from Jemdat Nasser, a group of female slaves are qualified as Nimki, or in other words, being from the land of Nim, which is later used to write the land of Elam, in other words, people from southwestern Iran. The lexical list of cities mentions Susa, so we know that they were at least in some kind of contact with Susiana at this point. So children had appeared in archaic text in the Uruk IV period, but they become more common during the Jemdat Nasser. We see two patterns of classifying humans. One- Broken into half by gender, and then males and females are broken into adults, children, and babies. And the other pattern breaks them into six age groups. The first four are children, and then healthy adults, and then old people. As I said, the cuneiform sign indicating one half is used to represent both children and juvenile animals. We have about two dozen Jemdet Nasser texts concerning children. One text breaks them into females, males, female minors, and male minors. In other words, the name for an adult woman is their word for female without an age designation. The sign combination sha Tour, in other words, baby and children together. Mirrors the kind of accounting system where they have a number and then the sign for male and female. So that number refers to the number of both male and female slaves together. So when they have a number and it says shatur, that is the total number of both babies and children. So in other words, generally, children seem to have been sorted in these texts based on how young they were and therefore how much care they needed versus how old they were and how much work they could be expected to do. One text. To quote a 2015 article by Vitali Bartash, is, quote, A cumulative account of individuals, adults, and children entering or leaving a central institution mentions 20 babies and 32 older children, as well as some adults. So in general, we see that these institutions are recording huge amounts of people in their control slash care. These temples are essentially raising huge populations of orphan children or slave children until the point when they can be forced to work and then apparently forcing them to work until they're old and can't work anymore. That's slavery. So to look at the bureaucracy of the temple itself, the main functions of the temple are to grow crops and animal products on this land, and to collect plant and animal products from other people, to organize infrastructure projects like buildings, walls, and canals, and food redistribution, both as daily and monthly wages, as well as occasional feasts and festivals and so on. To accomplish this, they needed an increasingly large bureaucracy to keep track of inflow and outflow. They needed many literate officials with different jobs, some being more powerful than others. They needed workers with varying degrees of specialization, like weavers, carpenters, metalworkers, shepherds, farmworkers, and so on. This accounting system became more complex over time. They come up with increasingly elaborate ways to detail more types of people and rations. In terms of tax and tribute, we see records of fields and households big enough to support 500 to 2,500 people. And we see records of herders delivering a certain percentage of their dairy fat. As we talked about last time, they were getting rid of redundant or obsolete signs. So during the uruk 4 period, they had no less than 31 signs for sheep, probably indicating wool-bearing sheep, fat-tailed sheep, and so on. In the Jemdet Nasr period, they have only three signs for sheep. We see records of distributions, so workers are paid in barley and beer. More specialized workers are paid in wool or textiles and leather. And we also see, as I mentioned earlier, signs for land distributed as grain-growing plots. So in other words, individual people are given their own personal plots of land by the temple. One of these tablets records the distribution of various types of grain, apparently for a temple official performing a celebration for Inanna. In a 2019 article by J. K. L. Johnson, he talks about one text that might be ingredients for a feast. The first part contains, quote, grain products, including breads, pastries, and beer, ending with meat, soups, or stews, and the rest is sexagesimal quantities of, quote, meat and fish, textiles, and dried fruit, end quote. And we have metadata at the end of the text, including the location of the feast and the day it was held, and a statement that, quote, these materials were consumed on that occasion, end quote. This text has the sign combination ru, which we've talked about, might be the city name of Jemdat Nasser, might be the name of the temple hosting the feast, or it might be a technical term that is obsolete in later periods. I mentioned in a previous episode that sheep and goat herders got to keep a certain percentage of the milk fat from their herds every year when they turned the rest of it over to the temple. And during the Jemdat Nasser, we have a similar situation with cattle so during the Uruk period, we would have records of a named individual receiving one or more head of cattle. So sex-adjustable number of cattle, plus the sign indicating cattle, plus the signs indicating the recipient, maybe their name. And then sometimes some more information, like the name of the official or the function of the animals. A separate text would tally up the total of bulls and cows allotted to particular people. And again, calves in these lists would be indicated with the cuneiform sign for one half. So this system changes from the Uruk to the Jemdat Nasr period. In the Uruk period, we have big herds mentioned in texts. We have lots of records of herds assigned to individuals, probably on behalf of the temple, and we have little mention of dairy products. Whereas during the Jemdat Nasr, we have fewer instances of smaller herds and much more records of dairy products and a much more complicated system for recording dairy products. So maybe what's happening is that, whereas during the Uruk, the temple owned all of the cattle and employed people to watch them, now it may be that other people own cattle, but the temple retains the right to collect dairy products as tribute from these cattle owned by other people. We have a lexical list on cattle with 24 fragments from the Jem'at Nasser period. We have later versions at Shurupak, Ebla, and Abu Salabik, all of which we'll visit soon. In its archaic version, it has three columns for cows, bulls, and calves, and sign combinations for traits like hide color, reddish, white, or black. Last episode, we talked about the tribute list. In other words, a hypothetical list of tribute copied for centuries by scribes and scribe school. It has a standardized sequence of animals, 10 cows for every one bull. It has the same 10 to one sex ratio for sheep and goats, these three being the major domestic animals. So in a semi-arid climate, a cow can produce 700 to 800 liters of milk a year. Half of it is going to go to its calves. So this can produce about 15 liters of dairy fat, ghee or clarified butter. This is 4% milk, you know, whole milk, obviously and herders were expected to turn over two to four liters of dairy fat per milk cow, and presumably keep the other 12-ish liters. So one text from the Jemdat Nasser records an influx of 26 containers of milk fat, which would have come from about 50 to 100 milk cows, and because milk cows would only make up about half of a herd, we're looking at a herd of maybe 100 or 200 head of cattle total. And if so, this is the same size of cattle herd as they had during the Uruk, just a different recording system, whether the temple owned these herds or not. So to talk about language, our kick texts mention Elam and Susa, so for the next few millennia, Elam will be the Sumerian name for the region, including Susa and Anshan to the southeast. As I mentioned, a Jem'dat Nasta period text mentions Elamite female slaves. So after the end of the Uruk period, around 3100 BC, the material culture in Susiana becomes more Iranian than Mesopotamian. This is the beginning of the proto elamite period. So the proto elamite script is a new distinctive type of script. It developed during the late Uruk period, around the same time as Cuneiform script. It probably developed in the lowlands for use trading with the rest of the Iranian plateau. We see it as far east as the modern Iran-Afghan border. So it's not clear if this was directly based on Uruk writing, or whether it was part of the same milieu but a separate invention, or some combination of that. We do know that both in time and place, it overlaps with the development of cuneiform. Compared to archaic Uruk writing, it has the same basic structure. The signs are written differently. Geographically, it's found across a more widespread area, and it borrowed its numerical signs directly from proto-cuneiform. And I should clarify, it's called proto-Elamite because it's used in the same region as the later Elamite language, but because we can't read it or decipher it for the same reason we can't decipher proto cuneiform we can't know for sure if it's related to the later Elamite language spoken in the third and second and first millennia BCE in Iran. The proto-Elamite script was used between about 3300 to the 2900s, so the late Uruk and Jemdet Nasser period. Radiocarbon data indicates there was no separation between the late Uruk and proto-Elamite levels at sites. So The Proto-Elamite script was probably used for local purposes. It was focused on grain, livestock, and labor on a small scale, with no mention of imported resources like metal or stone, all of which probably indicates that it was used for local administration, not external trade. Some signs clearly correspond to objects. Some of them are pictographic, some are not. Like I said, some have numerical notations. Certain individuals are identified by short strings of signs, which may be early syllabic writing. We'll look at Proto-Elamite culture more at some point in the future. But for now, let's return to the quote-unquote Sumerian question. God knows that when you put an ethnicity in front of the word question, uh, only good things can follow from that. So in episode 12, we talked about the quote unquote Sumerian question, which essentially asks, did the earliest writing represent the Sumerian language? There are related questions about demographics, and migration, and so on. But for our purposes, we want to know, were scribes during the Jemdet Nasser period speaking Sumerian, and did they intend to represent Sumerian language with their writing? I'm going to spoil it ahead of time. Academics disagree. Cuneiform is an extremely complicated system. It's not at all intuitive to people familiar with an alphabetic system because it developed from scratch out of much earlier record-keeping techniques. It has a lot of irregularities. For example, pictograms that don't seem to correspond to the words they represent. These discrepancies have no explanation within the Sumerian language as we know it, and they might make sense if they had been used originally for a different language. So in 1931, Stephen Langdon found the signs N-A-T at Jemadat Nasser interpreted as the Sumerian name enlil T, or may Enlil give life. If true, this would fit the usual Sumerian pattern of personal names, where it's a, you know, subject and a predicate, it references a god name. So that third sign, T is a pictograph of an arrow. In Sumerian, life and arrow are homophones. So this may be an instance of rebus. So a rebus is a way of representing a word or phrase with multiple images in order. So if you pronounce the names of those images in order, you will end up pronouncing the original word. So an example I got from Wikipedia, if you draw an eyeball, a soda can, the ocean, and a female sheep, you could use it as a rebus to produce the sentence, I can see you. The sign for arrow, which you can easily draw, would be used to represent its homophone, the word life, which is not easily drawn. And in the Sumerian language, because life and arrow pronounce the same, T tea or teal, you know, this would be a way to indicate the word life among Sumerian speakers. But in his 1998 book, Robert England disagrees. He says the sign T shows up 50 times in the archaic corpus but never after a supposed divine name, and only once together with N-A, those other two signs. But on the other hand, the sign combination N-A shows up 30 times in archaic texts. The literal Sumerian of N-A is administrator of the household, literally N as in Lord and A as in House, Aanna being the House of Heaven. In lexical lists, N-A only appears in the city list, which might indicate that it is the name of a city. Manfred Krebenek translates N-A-T as The Lord Keeps the House Alive. So according to Robert England. Langdon's mistake had to do with the way that the name of the city Nippur was written. So in Sumerian times, Nippur was written with the same signs as the name of Enlil, its city god. But in this archaic lexical list, Nippur is written with the sign Ked, which is pronounced Lil in the name Ninlil, Enlil's wife, not with the sign A, which is pronounced Lil in Enlil's name. So Enlil and Ninlil are the patron god and goddess of the city of Nippur. But the Lil in each of their names is written with a different sign. So Robert England says it's best to leave N-A-T untranslated, quote, the designation seems to be of an official who stands in some relationship to counted slaves in Jemdet Nasser texts, end quote. He says that T is, quote, a counted object registered also in baskets and, at least in Proto-Elamite texts, in very large numbers, end quote. So this would be consistent with the literal object of an arrow, which might mean that N-A-T is the lord of the household of the bows and arrows, in other words, leader of the armory. So one argument that these texts were written in Sumerian is the sign gi. So in a Jemdet Nasser context, this is an administrative action related to control of goods and land. Likewise, in Sumerian times, we see the sign, gi, used to represent the Sumerian word, gi, which is a verb meaning to cause, to return. And as we've been saying, the archaic texts are not language-oriented. In other words, they're not complete sentences as we think of them. But the order of signs is not entirely random. In other words, these signs seem to follow a strict order in syntax. Within text entries, numbers are always in the same place relative to ideograms. And the remaining ideograms are probably proper nouns or people or places, or administrative functions like rations. So, in his 1998 book, Robert England hypothesizes that during the Uruk and Gemdanaster period, the Alluvia may have spoken a hypothetical pre Sumerian language, which he calls archaic. So, some things don't make sense from the point of view of later Sumerian. For example, the sign kash indicating beer represents the sound b, but there's no obvious word associated with beer that starts with b. So, England says that this problem could be solved if b is an Uruk period word for beer from a different language that retained its phonetic use in written language even after people stopped speaking that language. So I mentioned earlier that the name of the temple household, Esh, was written with the sign Ab. During the Uruk period, this may have been a pictograph for the gulf or the marshes on the coast, but during the Jem'at Nasser period, it is used to represent the temple household and it's drawn more like a temple. But during the 2000s, in Sumerian, Ab is used to write the Sumerian word for sea, as in the ocean. So according to England, the word esh meant both sea and household in the hypothetical archaic language. So they could use a concrete object, like the Persian Gulf, to refer to an abstract concept, like the bureaucracy running the household, and use the same sign for both. Again, because they would have pronounced the word the same. And the Sumerian language, in this case, would have inherited the word esh as a synonym for a, or house, and continued to call their big temples and palace households esh. But they would not have inherited the word esh meaning sea, so that would have become obsolete. Similarly, a pictogram of an equid, probably wild ass, is used to write the Sumerian word giri, or foot, which is weird because the sign, du, is a pictogram of a foot. So, if you have a pictogram of a foot and you want to write the word for foot, why would you not use the picture of a foot? So, England says, quote, One possibility, giri or gri might be the name of an animal in a lost language, and its pictographic representation was chosen as a rebus by early dynastic Sumerian intruders, end quote. So, in other words, Sumerians show up to an archaic speaking society. They see that the picture of a wild ass is used to write the sound giri. These incoming Sumerians have that word giri, which in their language means foot. So they see the sign that makes the sound that in their language means foot, and they start using the sign to represent the word foot, even though there's already a pictogram of a foot that makes a different sound. Similarly, the archaic sign gurush is clearly a sledge or cart. In Uruk administrative texts, it is supported by apparent wheels or logs that it rolls on. But in one serial field account, it is regularly paired with sal or female slave. So in this context, the sign gurush probably means male. In other words, you know, male and female slaves together. And this corresponds with the Sumerian word gurush, meaning male worker. So in Robert England's scenario, gurush or grush was a homophone for both sledge and worker in the archaic language. They would use a pictogram of a sledge, definite object, to represent the abstract concept of a male worker. In other words, you know, even though you can draw the guy, you need to represent the abstract concept of his being a slave or a manual laborer. So, likewise, Sumerian would have inherited the word gurush, meaning male worker, but not its homophone, meaning sledge. But because the pictogram of a sledge was already used to represent the abstract concept of a worker, they would have continued doing that, even if that didn't make sense in their language. So, this is my opinion, and a quick disclaimer, I'm not an academic, I'm literally just some guy. But if I had to guess, the language spoken in the southwestern alluvium in the late 3000s was probably the ancestor of later Sumerian. Ur, Unug, and Eridu are all near each other, and throughout the 2000s, they seem to have had more or less a unified culture, and a unified language. During the mid to late 2000s, this is the quote-unquote standard Sumerian dialect. You know, later on, we'll see the language at Lagash in the southeastern alluvium be closer to the later Emeasal or women's dialect. So in this scenario, the alluvium in the early Uruk period would have mostly spoken proto-Sumerian, and the Uruk expansion would bring quote-unquote Sumerian culture to the rest of the Near East. So for example, at later Kish, we see a twin city similar to Unug. The god of Kish proper is the Semitic god Zababa, but we also have a separate temple complex called the Hirsung Kalama, which is Sumerian for mountain of the land of Sumer, and this is a temple of Inanna. So in other words, what may have happened here is that there was a Semitic community with their own god named Zababa, and then the Uruk expansion happened, and they built a separate temple complex to the Uruk goddess, Inanna, and then the name of this Uruk outpost at Kish became the mountain of the land of Sumer, which they may have seen as separate from Kish at that point. Later on, Kalam, their term for the land of Sumer, will mean more like civilized land then it will refer to any particular ethnic group. So, you know, urban society as opposed to herders and nomadic people in the mountains and plains. So this is the mainstream opinion. In a lot of pop history books, it'll say, you know, in ancient Sumer, and in parentheses, it'll say, you know, 3500 to 2000 BC or whatever. I guess what I'm saying is I agree with them, even if we're not exactly sure which languages they were speaking for the first half of that period. That said, though, Sumerian, as we know it in the 2000s, was influenced by many languages. In episode 12, we talked about Sumerian words for specialized professions that appear to be loan words from other languages these are very simple words like farmer, herdsman, fisherman, weaver, leather worker, trade agent slash merchant, and agricultural terms like palm, date, plow, and furrow, which obviously indicates very intensive interaction with other languages very early on in the development of Sumerian as a language. There are several ways that quote unquote non-Sumerian words can enter the Sumerian language. Sumerian speakers could migrate into a non-Sumerian area or vice versa. You could have intensive trade or cultural contact without intensive migration, or you could have a new invention or a new development that travels with the foreign name for it. In other words, the word for television is similar across most of the world, even if most of the people who use that word have never interacted with an English speaker because the television was invented and popularized within an English-speaking context. So most likely there was no unified group that we could call the Sumerians in the 3000s. Frankly, I could have saved us all a little bit of trouble by just referring to Uruk culture as Sumerian from the get-go. But mostly I've hedged my bets because the vicarious nationalism of this kind of thing bugs me. You know, if you could say that the Sumerian culture invented all this stuff, you know, writing cities and so on, it would be very easy to believe that any given imperial culture in the present could take credit for all of the wondrous accomplishments of the modern world, conflating all of the accomplishments of an entire region during a period of history with a particular language group or ethnic group, which has its problems. The Sumerians, whoever they were, couldn't have done all this stuff without the help of everyone else in the Near East. So the Ubaid period, as we know it, was a cultural outgrowth of what was happening in late Neolithic Syria and northern Iraq. We see intensive trade links and possibly migration links with Iran early on, as well as the Gulf and so on. So that's my take. But in terms of what we know for sure, we can't know what language this is, and there are a few reasons why. Number one, quote-unquote, archaic, may have been extinct by historical times. We see major upheavals around 2900 BCE. Robert England thinks these may be Sumerians immigrating into the alluvium from elsewhere. The immigration of Sumerians might also be associated with the upheavals around 3100, or the Ubaid, or sometime in between. No way to know. Number two, it's possible that the script did not represent a spoken language. 85% of all archaic texts we have are administrative texts, and most of these texts don't have too much context or explanation. You know, if you say ten seal of barley deposited and then your seal, and then that's the entire text. Whoever's gonna see that text is going to know that you oversaw the transfer of ten seal of barley. You don't need to write a whole paragraph about what's going on because if anyone has any questions, they could just ask you. You're all in the same building. And of course they're not writing for the benefit of outsiders five thousand years later who want to understand the intimate details of their society. And number three. The lexical lists that are, are key for understanding what these early texts are talking about at all are also not grammatical language. They're mostly one-word entries, so you know the names of domestic animals and professional titles and so on. You know, there's no syntax, as we can see in even the most simple royal inscriptions from later on that have like a subject and a predicate. The tribute list is exceptional. It is undeciphered, not only in modern times, but even to scribes of the 2500s who were copying out this tribute list verbatim without understanding what it meant. We know this because we have notes from other scribes saying, we don't know what this means. So, Arcade Cuneiform was an administrative system, not a language. If you go to the store and buy stuff and get a receipt, the receipt might have some English words on it. It might have an entire phrase, you know, have a nice day, but mostly it's going to be rows of numbers or abbreviations of words or numerical codes that if you asked an employee at the store what each one of those things meant, they would be able to tell you. But the receipt is not printed so that any stranger from any culture in any time period can look at it and know how to reconstruct that entire society. Likewise, people making these administrative texts had to process a lot of information quickly. Not to mention, writing a cuneiform sign takes longer than writing a letter in the Latin alphabet. So you don't want to write more than you need to. So in conclusion, there is no way to know what language they were speaking. There were probably many different languages being spoken in the alluvium. Sumerian was almost certainly one of them. Probably most likely it was the lingua franca or the dominant language. Either way, we will meet the Sumerians in season three. Starting in Ur in the 2700s BCE, we have phonetic writing, which is the first time that we can be sure they're writing in Sumerian. Anyway, let's return to the end of the Lugalbanda saga. Previously, the mythical bird Anzu has given him the power of running extremely quickly.
1: In his thighs, specifically in his his thighs. thighs, Yes. (laughs) Leaving out the
0: calves. (laughs) I only skipped leg day below the knee. (laughs) Anzu made Lugalbanda promise not to tell anyone else about the superpowers he was granted. And then Anzu helped Lugubanda reunite with the soldiers that had abandoned him in the mountain cave.
1: Like a pelican emerging from the sacred reed bed. Like Lahama deities going up from the Abzu. Like one who was stepping from heaven to earth. Lugubanda stepped into the midst of his brother's picked troops. His brothers chatted away. The troops chattered away. His brothers, his friends weary him
0: with questions. Come now, my Lugubanda, here you are again. The troops had abandoned you as one killed in battle. Certainly you were not eating the good fat of the herd. Certainly you were not eating the sheepfold's fresh cheese. How is it that you have come back from the great mountains, where no one goes alone, whence no one returns to mankind?
1: Again his brothers. His friends weary him with questions.
0: The the banks of the mountain rivers, mothers of plenty, are widely separated. How did you cross their waters, as if you were drinking them? <laughs> just,
1: just. Oh, we gotta ford the river. I got an idea. I'll drink the river dry. <laughs> like as you're fording the river, you're just like sucking a perfect swath path through with your exactly. with your just killer suction. Holy Lugubonda replies
0: to them. The banks of the mountain rivers, mothers of plenty, are widely separated. With my legs, I stepped over them. I drank them like water from a waterskin, and then I snarled like a wolf. I grazed the water meadows. I pecked at the ground like a wild pigeon. I ate the mountain acorns.
1: Yo, there's a lot of tannins in acorns. You gotta, like, really (laughs) treat them. And just, like, also the idea of this dude pecking the ground like a pigeon. Yes. It's very funny. Obviously, many ate, like, stuff he found. But, like, you know, it's funnier to think of this, like, this, like, dude in armor. With, like, three axes. Just, like, shoving his face into some dirt. (laughs) Lugobanda's brothers and friends consider the words that he has said to them. Exactly as if they were small birds flocking together, all day long they embrace him and kiss him. As if he were a gamgam chick, sitting in its nest, they feed him and give him drink. They drive away sickness from holy Lugalbanda. Then the men of Unug follow them as one man. They wound their way through the hills like a snake over a grain pile. When the city was only a double hour distance, the armies of Unug and Kulaba encamped by the posts and ditches that surrounded Arata. From the city, it rained down javelins as if from the clouds, sling stones, numerous as the raindrops falling in a whole year, whizzed down loudly from Arata's walls. The days passed, the months became long, the year turned full circle. A yellow harvest grew beneath the sky. They looked askance at the fields. Unease came over them. Slingstones, numerous as the raindrops falling in a whole year, landed on the road. They were hemmed by the barrier of mountain thorn bushes, thronged with dragon. No one knew how to go back to the city. No one was rushing to go back to Kulaba. In their midst, Enmerkar, son of Utu, was afraid, was troubled, was disturbed by this upset. He sought someone who he could send back to the city. He sought someone whom he could send back to Kulaba. No one said to him, I will go to the city. No one said to him, I will go to Kulaba.
0: So this repeats a couple times, and none of the soldiers volunteers to go back to Unug
1: until Hold on, i just want to talk about the pacing of the story real yeah. quick so i just want to be very clear that we spent roughly the amount the amount of time making sure the audience understood that they were in a nest yeah as we did a year-long siege <laughs> yes. of a city i mean yes i just want to compare like the length of text for those two <laughs> events of like yeah. being like we're in a nest yeah we're in a nest we're in a nest yeah we're definitely in a nest are we in a nest i want to confirm we're in a nest and then like oh yeah by the way we we've sieged the city for a year yeah yeah, yeah. also dragons
0: yeah but the Akkadian word is mushushu Um, (gasps) They're kind of Mushu Yeah I don't know if that was intentional or not Huh So Enmerkar's siege of Arata Has reached a stalemate Enmerkar begins to worry That he's lost Inanna's favor So he needs to send a messenger To talk to her Back in Unug And at first Nobody volunteers Lugubanda alone arose From the people And said to him My king I will go to the city But no one shall go with me I will go alone to Kulaba No one shall go with me
1: Enmerkar answers If you shall go to the city No one shall go with you. You shall go alone to Kulaba. No one shall go with you. He swore by heaven and by earth. Swear that you will not let go from your hands the great emblems of Kulaba. After he had stood before the summoned assembly, within the palace that rests on earth like a great mountain, Enmerkar, son of Utu, berated Inanna. Once upon a time, my princely sister, holy Inanna, summoned me. In her holy hearts from the bright mountains had me enter brick built kulaba where there was a marsh then in unug it was full of water where there was any dry land euphrates poplars grew there where there were reed thickets old reeds and young reeds grew there divine Ninki, who is king in uridu tore up for me the old reeds drained off water completely for 50 years I built, for 50 years I was successful. Then the Martu peoples who know no agriculture arose in all Sumer and the Cod. But the wall of Anug extended out across the desert like a
0: bird net. So the Martu peoples here refers to the Amorites who were relevant to the 21st century when this was written. And these were kind of like nomadic herding peoples. Hammurabi was from an Amorite dynasty.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. So what I'm getting here is there's a a guy who's been in power for 50 years who's now complaining with jingoistic jargon. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, things are great
0: until all these immigrants got here. Well,
1: I mean, I obviously as an American, I, I can't find any of that relatable about yeah. like a really old dude in power <laughs> complaining uh, falsely, probably very falsely, incorrectly right. about like groups of people coming into that kingdom and ruining it. That that doesn't seem uh, like you can draw any parallels to American politics in that. Yep. It's also funny because we could extend it because this guy's been in power for 50 years and this appears to be the first time he's failing. Right. And he's instantly <laughs> blaming another group of yeah. people <laughs> and not, not not turning the gaze inwards at all.
0: Right. Well, it's it's funny because even even in what he says, he doesn't say that they're actually doing anything bad. He just says they're here now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. he lists all the bat. He lists all this bad shit. and He's like, they're here. Yeah, I'm not making any statements. <laughs> you draw your own conclusions. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah.
0: So, and Mercard continues.
1: Yeah, now here in this place, my attractiveness. To-
0: Blaming immigrants for the fact that my wife no longer finds me attractive.
1: <laughs> fucking immigrants with their six packs and their and their hygiene and their and their you know weekly date nights and their and their you know remembering to compliment her and they're remembering to like you know grow emotionally and remembering to to listen and to respect her. fucking immigrants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yet now, here in this place, my attractiveness to her has dwindled. My troops are bound to me as a cow is bound to its calf. But like a son who, hating his mother, leaves his city, my princely sister, holy Inanna, has run away from me back to brick-built Kulaba. If she loves her city and hates me, why does she bind the city to me? If she hates the city and yet loves me, why does she bind me to the city? If the mistress removes herself from me to her holy chamber and abandons me like an Anzu chick, then may she at least bring me home to brick-built Kulaba. On that day my spear shall be laid aside. On that day she may shatter my shield. Speak thus to my princely sister, Holy Anana. Thereupon, Holy Lugalbanda came forth from the palace. Although his brothers and his comrades barked at him, as at a foreign dog trying to join a pack of dogs, he stepped proudly forward like a foreign wild ass trying to join a herd of wild asses.
0: For Enmerkar, son of Utu, I shall go alone to Kulaba. No one shall go with me. How he spoke to them. So Lugalbanda's fellow soldiers say,
1: Why will you go alone and keep company with no one on the journey? If our beneficent spirit does not stand by you there, if our good protective deity does not go with you there, you will never again stand with us where we stand. You will never again dwell with us where we dwell. You will never again set your feet on the ground where our feet are. You will not come back from the great mountain where no one
0: goes alone whence no one returns to mankind. Lugubanda replies, Time is passing, I know. None of you is going with me over the great earth. While the hearts of his brothers beat loudly, while the hearts of his
1: comrades sank, Lugalbanda took in his hand such of his provisions as he had not eaten, and each of his weapons, one by one. From the foot of the mountains, through the high mountains, into the flat land, from the edge of Anshan to the top of Anshan, he crossed five, six, seven mountains. By midnight, but before they had brought the offering table to Holy Anana, he set foot joyfully in brick-built kulaba. His lady, Holy Anana, sat there on her cushion. He bowed and prostrated himself on the ground. With joyful eyes, Anana looked at Holy Lugulbanda as if she would look at the shepherd, Amma Ishumgalana. In a joyful voice, Anana spoke to Holy Lugulbanda as she would speak to her son,
0: Lord Shara. Come now, my Lugubanda, why do you bring news from the city? How have you come here, alone from Arata? Holy Lugubanda answered her. What Enmerkar, son of Utu, quoth and what he says? What your brother quoth and what he says is? And then he repeats Enmerkar's lament from earlier.
1: Well, repetition in one of these myths? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a little standoffish for that. And by the way,
0: ama ushumgal is one of the names of Dumuzi, her, like, god-husband. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inanna answers him. One of the types of fish that she mentions. The tablet is damaged at that point. Ah,
1: oh, okay. Uh, so I'll just call it the other fish. The other fish. Yeah, you know. Holy Inanna uttered this response.
0: Now, at the end, on the banks in the water meadows of a clear river, of a river of clear water, of the river which is Inanna's gleaming waterskin, the Suhurmash fish eats the honey herb, the toad eats the mountain acorns, and the other fish, which is a god of the Suhurmash fish, Plays happily there and darts about with his scaly tail. He touches the old reeds in that holy place, the tamarisks of the place. As many as there are drink water from that pool. It stands alone. It stands alone. One tamarisk stands alone at the side. When Enmerkar, son of Utu, has cut that tamarisk and has fashioned it into a bucket, he must tear up the old reeds in that holy place, roots and all, and collect them in his hands. When he has chased out from it the other fish, which is a god of the suhurmash fish, caught that fish cooked it, garnished it, and brought it as a sacrifice to the Ah Ankar weapon, Inanna's battle strength, then his troops will have success for him. Then he will have brought to an end that which in the subterranean waters provides the life strength of Arata. If he carries off from the city its worked metal and smiths, if he carries off its worked stones and the stonemasons, if he renews the city and settles it, all the molds of Arata will be his.
1: Now Arata's battlements are of green lapis lazuli, its walls and its towering brickwork. Are bright red. Their brick clay is made of tinstone, dug out in the mountains where the cypresses grow. Praise be to holy Lugalbanda. Kind of. Quick resolution there?
0: Yeah. No, that's the thing. It's like it, it. doesn't really address Like, don't tell anyone about this. It's like, okay, well, Huh? He offers to go, but no one's like, hey, why can you run so fast? He's like, it doesn't come up. So they
1: didn't. It, he didn't. He did. Oh, I'm disappointed. Yeah. I wanted. Yeah, I yeah. wanted the monk, I wanted him to break the cod, and then like
0: the the bird guarding the. Oh, come that, on. That would that would be a more compelling story. But it's just it's just like
1: <laughs> guy asks God for gift. God gives that guy gift. He saves day. Yeah. He just goes to a guy, he's like, hey, my guy is struggling. Like, hey. Yeah.
0: hey God, give me superpower. This one, no. This one, no. This one, no. This this one, no yeah. this one okay
1: yeah, yeah, one. yeah go Caesar city for a little bit like ah oh, i'll go be a messenger to another guy like hey other god, uh guy needs help like oh okay tell him to do this Sorry, yeah. tell him to just conquer it like oh we didn't think of that <laughs> yeah. oh yeah we didn't think to conquer the city <laughs> oh my god <laughs>